I am excited to continue our series, right? We're looking at the book of John, right? The gospel of John. And uh, as we look into this, um, I know Jonathan had preached on John 6 last week, right? Um, and so we're going to look into John 7. We're just going to do the first 30 verses. Uh, it might be long, so if you fall asleep, I won't hold it to you. But uh, let's just pray, and then we'll ask God for his help, and then we'll get into it. Uh, Father, I thank you for this afternoon. God, I thank you uh, for my brothers and sisters, for my church, uh, for the family that you have given me. And God, I thank you that uh, what you have given to us, with, that we are not left blind, groping around in a room, trying to find our salvation. But God, you have given us the light of the world, and you have opened up our eyes so that we can see uh, the truth. So God, I pray that you would do that again, uh, you would cut our heart afresh again, that you allow us to see you rightly so that we could see the world rightly as well. Thank you again uh, for your truth. We pray that you would allow it to plant seeds in our hearts and that we would grow um, for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you, uh, I know the kids are here too. Um, I, I just looked at, uh, I was sitting back there in Becca Merriam sitting in front of me. So I was looking at her, uh, what do you call that thing, clipboard? And it had some papers there. So there's one caption I saw. It says, I don't understand. And I just felt like everyone's going to need like a big page of like what they don't understand because I don't know what I'm doing here on this one. But uh, I hope that God would just allow us to see his truth more clearly. All right. Uh, so if you can, Peter read it earlier. Uh, but if you can, turn, turn to the Gospel of John again, chapter 7. And as you turn there, I want to tell you something, um, that spending time in this gospel, right, spending time in the gospel of John has been having an effect on me, right? God is doing this work uh, through this gospel in my life. You know, I've spent so much of my life uh, focused on me, right, uh, looking to myself. I've walked my life uh, with me as a uh, center of reference, and sometimes consciously, many times unconsciously, but just naturally been self-absorbed. Um, and he's been changing that for me, right? So he's been slowly changing that for me, and uh, he's been doing that for many years, but recently I'm, I've been glad that I could discover that as I drive, as I study, as I go through my day, I'm encouraged to be made aware that God, that Christ is occupying more and more of my thoughts, right? That he's occupying more and more of my affections, uh, that Christ is becoming more and more uh, to me, more real to me, and that's been very encouraging. And so I pray that something like that is happening for you as we study the book of John, that you are also seeing and savoring Christ uh, in a new way from our time here. All right, two things to keep in mind as we look at chapter 7. Um, if you remember back in chapter 5, uh, Jesus is in Jerusalem, right? And he had healed the crippled man on the Sabbath. And then in chapter 6, after teaching he, uh, that Jesus was a bread of life, Jesus witnessed the crowds leaving, right? And so now we're in chapter 7. And one thing that I've been noticing, if you look at the Gospel of John and you get up to chapter 7, that Jesus is probably, right, without a shadow of a doubt, the single most interesting person that has ever lived, Right? Everywhere he goes, he stirs things up in people's minds, 
right? Everywhere he goes, he stirs things up in people's hearts. You see this very dramatically played out in this passage, but you also see it played out in our own culture, right? In our own day. Who is Christ, right? Who is he? What is he? Right? It's not just because of these displays of power or supernatural knowledge that's interesting, but what's interesting about Jesus is the working of his purpose. What is he seeking to accomplish, right? And in Christ, we see the purpose and the will of God brought to bear with laser-like focus into human history. We see Christ on this mission, right, this purpose of God. We see, you know, if you can imagine a great ship, right? It's like the prow of a ship that is just cutting through the waters that stand before it. And anything that's in its way, it is undeterred, undisturbed, unstoppable towards its destination. And there are points in this gospel where that purposefulness of Christ comes so very clearly. And chapter 7 is one of those places. And there's something as I read that I find particularly interesting. Something's going on here, right? Something that's captivating, that arrests our attention, right? While he's clearly making a point to confront and expose and to point out what is not pleasing to God in the people's thoughts and the attitudes and the actions, at the same time that he's doing that, while he's speaking these incisive words, he's at the very same time making his way. Right? He is purposefully, right, resolutely walking down this path which is leading him to a place where he will one day lay down his own life to carry away, carry away those very sins that he's pointing out in the people. On one hand, you have this perfect, incisive, moral clarity, right? perfect righteousness. He sees right into the hearts of man, and in his zeal for holiness, he speaks against that which is not pleasing to God. And on the other hand, you have this compassion, right? This willingness to give his perfect life to ransom imperfect people. I don't know anyone in history, folks, right? I don't know anyone in history who has either one of those things, right? Much less the combination of those perfect moral clarity, right? Perfect righteousness, perfect zeal, perfect holiness and love, which makes him lead, uh, leads him to the absolute sacrifice for sinful people. And he does this with complete authority, right? And what I want us to see this evening is both sides of this purposefulness of Christ. I want us to see, uh, you know, for the kids in the room, I, was, I should have said this earlier, there's one word that I'm going to use if you guys can tell me how many times I used it, I will give you a prize probably next Sunday if I remember. But that word is incisive, right? It's incisive. I already said it twice, so I'll, I'll, I'll give you that. But by the end of the message, you write it down, and then if you come up to me later, um, maybe I'll give you something. Uh, I want us to see his incisive words regarding the sin that is in the hearts of man, right? And incisive, right, for the kids in the room, it means what? an incision, a cutting, right? These cutting words um, that, that he says regarding the sin that is in the hearts of man. And I want us to see how amazingly his persistent love is poured out for us. Right? And here's the setting. We're told in verse 2 that the Jewish feast of booths is at hand. Right? The nation of Israel had an annual cycle of feasts, just like we have an annual cycle of holidays. And this feast, feast of booths 
took place in the fall, typically around mid or late September. And it was eight, an eight-day-long feast, and it all culminated on the eighth day with this great gathering of people in the city of Jerusalem, right? This feast took place to coincide with the harvest time. It really was a commemoration of God's provision for Israel while they were wandering through the wilderness and God had provided for their needs. And in fact, during this feast, the people of Israel would construct uh, these kind of temporary shelters, right? These booths, in order to remember what it was like for the children of Israel um, as they made their way through the wilderness. Now remember, because of what Jesus has done on his last visit in Jerusalem, right, having healed that crippled man and having told him to take up his mat and carry it on the Sabbath, which according to the rulers in Jerusalem was a taboo, because of that and the impact of that, the Jewish authorities had made plans to kill Jesus. Right? And that was still stirring down in Jerusalem. But nonetheless... Jesus' brothers, they urge him, right? Actually, they, they're taunting him. They tell him what? Why don't you go down to the feast, right? Why don't you go down to Jerusalem, right? There's going to be huge crowds there. Why don't you show yourself to the world so that maybe your falling popularity would be resurrected if you just go down to Jerusalem and do a few miracles and you will become popular once again. And John tells us, notice in verse 5, they spoke that way because not even his brothers believed him. Not even his brothers believed him. Jesus' brothers did not become true believers until after the resurrection. And at this point, they grasp absolutely nothing about God's agenda and God's purpose. Right? They don't really comprehend the unique mission that Jesus is on. They don't understand all the significance of this mission that Jesus is on. And now, in his response to his brothers, Jesus makes this bold and stark statement. Right? Listen to Jesus' response. My time has not yet come. You guys can, you can uh, see it back here. Yeah? Um, my time has not yet come. Your time is always here. It doesn't matter whether you go. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me. And now here's a phrase, because I testify about it, that its works are evil. You go up to the feast, I'm not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And after saying this, he remains, that is Jesus, he remains in Galilee. Right? He's simply not going to the feast according to their wishes, right? according to their ideas, or according to their timetable. He will go, but he will go according to the purposes and timing of his mission. So after time, Jesus goes. Not publicly, right? We read in, uh, Peter read for us, not publicly, but tri not triumphantly. That was going to take place when? Six months later. Planned by God to perfectly coincide with the Passover. So when Jesus goes privately, you have to understand, this is not fear, on Jesus' part, right? This is not evasiveness on Jesus' part. This is submission, right? Now, in Jerusalem, the Jewish authorities are waiting for him. They're kind of thinking like, just like Jesus' brother did, they're kind of hoping that he would come down and that the, the, the feast and the crowds would be somewhat irresistible to Jesus, that he would come down and it will draw Jesus back into their hands. And so Jesus goes, but in verse 14, he says, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went 
up to the temple, and he began what? He began teaching, right? As he is teaching, the crowds gather, and among them, the crowd, and among the crowd are many Jewish authorities, and they marvel at his teaching, saying, where does that come from, right? How did he, he has never gone to any of our schools. How did he, not studying under any of us, how did he become so authoritative in his teaching? And here's a little bit of a history. If you remember in Acts chapter 22, Paul, as he's stating his professional statement, he says, I have studied and have been educated. I studied under Gamaliel, right, who was a rabbi, a high priest, a rabbi that really knew his stuff, right? So it's kind of tradition for the Jewish people to study under someone who knew a lot more, right? Like if I said, Tim Keller prepped this message for me, you guys would be like, all right, this is good. But he did not do that, so you guys are stuck with this. So it's kind of like that, right? So how did he, not having studying under any of this, become so authoritative in his teaching? They are amazed by his teaching, right? They are amazed at his command of the Old Testament scriptures. They are amazed at his mastery and his insight. They are amazed. And even though they don't want to admit it, they are amazed at the weight and the authority of his teaching. And they say, where does that come from? And right then, Jesus stops teaching. And he takes that question as an opportunity to testify about the evil that is in their hearts. Right? He takes that opportunity to testify about the evil that is in their hearts. He speaks powerfully, incisive words. Um, verse 16, he says, You want to know about my teaching? My teaching is not mine, but him who sent me. Who sent me. If anyone will is to do God's will, he will know if the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own accord. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? He's answering the question, right? He's saying to them, if your will is to do God's will, you would know where my teaching comes from, right? You would recognize it. In fact, you would rejoice in it, but you do not recognize it, and you do not rejoice in it because you do not desire to do God's will. See, Jesus was accusing the religious authorities. He was testifying against the religious leaders, the ones whose very profession... Right? was to determine, to teach, and explain to the people what, the God, what God's will was. Right? He was saying they did not know God's will. Right? They did not do God's will, and ultimately, they did not even desire to do God's will. And that was why they didn't recognize that Jesus' teaching was the very voice of God. And here's what Jesus is saying. Here's what his incisive words are saying. God's words and God's will is not something to be analyzed intellectually. Right? It is not something to be assessed and discussed and examined as it was some object on a laboratory table. That is not how God's word, that is not how God's truth is known. Right? No. There is a moral dimension, right? There's a faith dimension to knowing God's voice and knowing his truth. There must be a posture of submission. There must be a posture of godly reverence. There must be a recognition that there is one God and I am not him. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of understanding, 
There must be a prior recognition, a prior posture, a prior commitment to doing God's will and to honoring God's will. It is only, is only the person who's ready to submit to God. It is only the person who's ready to do God's will, who humbles himself, right? Who yields to God, who discovers that Jesus' words are truth and they are life. And here, as Jesus stands at the feast, Jesus exposes what is really in their hearts, right? Really in the hearts of the people. He testifies against them. Right? That's a strong word, guys. He testifies against them. He says, you don't really know God's will. You don't desire God's will. But he doesn't stop there. There are more incisive words yet to come. Jesus asks them in verse 19, Has not Moses given you the law? And yet none of you keep the law. But let me show you what is really happening. Because Jesus says in verse 22, Moses gave you circumcision and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. The point that Jesus is making here is that sometimes the law regarding not working on the Sabbath right, and the law regarding circumcision will necessarily come into conflict. All right. What happens if a birth takes place such that the eighth day after the birth falls on a Sabbath? Such that the work of circumcision required by the law has to be done on a day when the law says no work is to be done. Jesus is saying, you were able to figure that one out. You were able to see that there is a priority to the work of circumcision. Such that you are actually keeping the law by circumcising someone on the Sabbath. But you failed to see that circumcision was just an outward symbol of a far greater inward spiritual reality. Right? You fail to see that what circumcision was pointing to was a work that God was going to do in the human heart. Right? To make him spiritually whole. To make him spiritually healthy. Right? You fail to see the real meaning and purpose of God's will. You fail to understand and truly practice the law of God. None of you keep the law, Jesus says. You judge only by appearances. Only by externals, you have not judged rightly. And as a result, you have failed to see right before your eyes the one who fulfills both the Sabbath and the circumcision. Not only do you not know and do God's will, you don't know God's law, you don't practice God's law, but even with these incisive words, Jesus, he's not done. In response to this little interchange that has just happened, more questions, right? More uncertainties stirred up in the crowd. Isn't this the one that they're trying to kill? But no one is doing anything about him. Could it be that maybe they've come to the conclusion that he is the Christ? But he can't be the Christ because when the Christ comes, we will, uh, we will know where he'll come from. And all of this was kind of stirring out in the crowd. So in verse 28, Jesus He says, over all of this murmuring, he proclaims, he shouted out above the crowd, you know me, you know where I come from, but I have not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true, and you do not know him. This is, I'm just going to take a little side tangent of uh, just preaching right now, and 
one thing that as I've heard before, and I think I've said it once at New Hope, uh, you know, coming to church makes you a Christian just as much as being in a garage makes you a car, right? That means coming to church and doing the externals of Christianity makes you a Christian just as much as you sitting in your garage would make you a car, right? And as Jesus is going in here, he's, he's pointing that out, but in a real, more clear and cutting way. You hear what Jesus is saying here. He's testifying against the people that, that has gathered there. <clears throat> Sorry. He's saying, the working of your hearts, right, the working of your minds, they are wrong. They are not according to the truth of God. See, you don't know God's will. You don't know God's law, and you don't know God. And Jesus speaking to the Jewish people who prided themselves in knowing the one true God, right? They believed that God had especially made himself known to them, and he had. But as universally is the case, true knowledge of God is not passed down by heredity, right? True knowledge of God is not passed on biologically or ethnically, Right? No, true knowledge of God is acquired by each person individually. Right? And as the people of Israel were generation by generation more and more preoccupied by, with the externals of religion, their heart grew dull towards God. Right? Such that over time, a nation by and large lost the true knowledge of their God. Right? You see, there is nothing so deadening to the divine as a habitual dealing with the outside of holy things. Going to church, perhaps occasionally picking up a devotional book, dealing with the outside of holy things. There is nothing more deadening to the true knowledge of God as a habitual ritualistic dealings of the outside of holy things. Such that when he stands before them, they don't even see God. Right? They don't recognize him. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. See, they did not truly know God. But New Hope, here's what's so amazing about John 7. Here's what's so compelling. Because even as Jesus is speaking these words, even as Jesus is testifying against the evil in man's hearts, even as Jesus is exposing their hearts, diagnosing and exposing the disease, at the same time, he is saying that he is making a way toward eradicating that disease. Right? He is committed to, the, to accomplishing his purpose, to rescue and save sinful people. It's the message of the gospel, and we need to hear it again. That this amazing committed love, right? And it's amazing because I ask you, I'll ask you this evening, if you were God, right? How would you respond to those who chose not to do your will, but to do in their own will? Seriously, how would you respond to those who chose not to know you, right? Not to do your law, but instead take it and make it something for their own purposes, Right? How would you respond to those who claim to know you but fail to recognize you and honor you? And you know what we see here? What we see here is an amazing, committed love in the face of all the hatred toward him. Jesus lovingly keeps teaching 
Right? He lovingly keeps pouring out his life, spending his life, and even more importantly, all the while continuing down this path towards sac- the sacrifice of himself for us. And you get a little bit of that uh, in verse 6 when he says to his brother, my time has not yet come. Right? And again in verse 8 he says, my time has not yet fully come. And then John tells us in verse 30, right? So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. All that we hear Jesus say, all that has been said up to this point, all of this is happening while a larger purpose is going on. While he is showing man their guilt, he is on his way to take that guilt on himself. Right? Not yet, but it's coming, right? The time is coming closer. And in chapter 12, when Jesus has entered in Jerusalem for Passover, and remember the people shout, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Little did they know that he has come to die. But Jesus knows, and on that day, he speaks for the very first time these words, the hour has now come. And for that moment, and for the next five days, we watch through the eyes of the Gospel of John, the steps of Jesus as he heads towards the cross, right, where he will bear in his body the sins of the people and receive the wrath of God for the sins, for those sins in our place. And this is what's so amazing to me about John 7. Right? Jesus is speaking these words of truth, <clears throat> testifying about the reality of sin in man's heart, and it's those very sins and a thousand more like them that he is willingly, not just willingly, joyfully, obediently going to the cross to pay for. Right? While Christ testified against the world, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now let me try to gather this all together and apply this for you. Certainly, this passage we looked at tonight speaks about the fact that Christ continues to testify about the evil in man's heart. Right? Christ, by now, by means of the Holy Spirit, speaks to man, speaks to women about their sin, communicating to them out of his love for them. Right? That the way to health and the way to life is to humbly acknowledge that what he says about our heart is true. Yes, something is not right in me. You see, Jesus is persistently pointing out the problem because he is bringing the solution. And only those who acknowledge that they have a problem will have the capacity to receive the solution. So in his love, Jesus continues to make sinners aware of their sin before holy God so that they would turn to Jesus and find salvation. But it seems to me this evening that those of us who are already following Christ have something to pay attention and to apply here as well. Clearly, if you have put your faith and your trust in Christ, everything, and I mean everything, has changed. Right? Everything is different. You see, Christ no longer testifies against us. Right? Romans 8 makes that so clear, that Christ is now at the right hand of the Father, and he testifies on our behalf. 
Do you hear that, guys? So that if any accusation is leveled against us, right? If any accusation is leveled against us, Christ meets it with his testimony. That one, that that child, that that son, that daughter, he or she has received my righteousness. Right? He now testifies for us. You see, the Holy Spirit now dwells within Christians and testifies that we are the children of God. Everything has changed. However, Christ has not gone soft on sin. Now from within the embrace of his love, now from within the safe embrace of the gospel, Christ still speaks to us about our sin. Right? While Christ is for us, right, he continues to be against anything that is not in line with God's will. Right? God's law or God's character. He's lovingly against any and all remaining sin in our lives. And now by the Holy Spirit, he continues this work of speaking loving and incisive words, exposing what is still there and wanting to remove whatever still remains there. And sometimes he does this through the work of teaching. Sometimes he does this through the example of another believer. Sometimes he uses an example of someone else's life. God has used every one of those means in my life to get at remaining sin in my heart. Right? And the question here is, the question I want to ask you this evening, is when the Holy Spirit, who was, who was sent by Christ to do this work in a believer's life, when the Holy Spirit speaks and testifies and convicts, how do we respond? Right? I ask you, is there an ongoing eagerness in your life to hear and receive the truth-telling of Christ about what is in your heart? Is there an ongoing eagerness now from within the safety, right? not the anger, the safety of Christ's steadfast love for you within the safe embrace of the gospel? Is there still an ongoing eagerness on your part to hear the incisive words of Christ as he lovingly continues to put his finger on an area in our lives that are not fully in keeping with God's will, that is not fully in keeping with God's law, that is not fully in keeping with who God is. And when Christ works in this way, speaking incisive words, making us aware of some place where we are not as we should be, is there receptivity to this work of Christ? So, as I'm getting ready to conclude, which will be in a few minutes, I promise, let's be very specific right now. Right? Identify in your mind, right? identify in your mind an area that God has put his finger and brought to your attention. Right? An area where you're not fully desiring to do God's will. An area where you are aware that you're not walking fully in God's law. I had this experience last night, and it's always very interesting, this preaching task, right? God tends to have already been at work, but he tends to add a little bit before. 
I stand up and preach. And I had this experience last night. The Holy Spirit to me, through my wife, um, and I was aware that he was putting his finger on a pattern of speech that I was insufficiently, I'm sorry, insufficiently aware of and also insufficiently pained by. How are you responding to this convicting work of the Holy Spirit? Is there a yielding, a humbling, a confessing that what you say is true? Or is there a resistance? Right? It's got to be two things, guys. Is there a receptivity or is there a resistance? And if there is, you need to realize that you are resisting the loving hand of God. And you're depriving yourself of what God intends for your good. Ask anyone here, right? Ask anyone who has experienced growth. It started with an admission, right? It started with a yielding. It started with a brokenness. And the problem is for us, even if we've experienced this incisive, health-inducing growth-promoting work of the Holy Spirit, there is still in us this capacity to resist the next time, right? And there will be a next time. Because Christ, having given us life to rescue us from the penalty of sin, is now committed to a thorough transformation of our lives. People of New Hope, let us this evening be freshly affected by the truth of this gospel. Right? Let us be freshly affected by the truth of the gospel again. That Christ's love, right, his persistent love, his love is for our good. Right? And it will not stop until it accomplishes his purpose. He is against all in our lives that is not in line with God's ways. Right? He's against all in our lives that is not in line with God's character. And he has done everything necessary to set us free. Now, when he speaks this word of conviction, in some area of your life, he's speaking it to us from the safety and security of his steadfast love. So New Hope, let us receive his word. Let us yield to him and find our lives more and more conformed to his glory. And to God's glory, amen. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you again uh, for your word, your incisive word that cuts deep into our hearts. That, Father, that even though that we can see your love, thank you for showing our lives in our lives that you are not soft on sin. And that you want to remove and expose and eradicate everything in our lives that is not in line with your will. And we pray by your Holy Spirit that you would continue to convict us and give us an eagerness to flee from sin and to flee to you, to run to you, to submit to you and to love you all the more for your glory and our joy. Amen. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. You can email us at info at newhopeny.org. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for those outlets is newhopenyc. Our website is www.newhopeny.org. 
If you are in the New York City area, we have 4 p.m. worship gatherings on Sundays at 164-2 Gothels Avenue in Jamaica, Queens. We're praying for you, and we hope to see you soon.